Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, our reading this week comes to us from the Gospel According to John. Written somewhere between the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, the Gospel according to John stands apart from the other three Gospel accounts of Matthew, Luke, and Mark. For while the same basic story is being told, more than 90% of the material in John is without parallel in the other three Gospels. In John, Jesus talks mostly about himself. He talks about his identity as one who has come to reveal the Father and what it means to believe and abide in him. Through the use of various images, the fourth evangelist attempts to structure a claim for the absolute uniqueness of Jesus. In this gospel, Jesus is portrayed as one who comes from the divine into the human realm there to reveal that which humans must know about God and themselves to live an authentic life as it was intended by the Creator. Let us turn now and give our absolute attention to a reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 14, chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, and chapter 14, 6 through 9a. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. The father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be astonished. Jesus said to him, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. But Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Spirit on me. 
Over Christmas break, our 19-year-old son Matthew sat down with us to watch the great film Goodwill Hunting. For him, it was his first time. As you may know, that film Goodwill Hunting is about this 20-year-old named Will Hunting who comes from South Boston, is a natural genius and self-taught expert on just about every subject, yet works as a janitor at MIT and drifts and drinks aimlessly through life. Uh, Will, in the movie, has deep issues, uh, childhood trauma, a long, long rap sheet, a fear of intimacy, and yet he possesses this amazing potential and promise. And as the film unfolds, he is required to meet with Sean, who's a therapist and a widower. And after Will insults Sean's late wife during their first therapy session, Sean takes Will out to a park bench and waxes poetic on love and life and experience in what is remarkably one of the most moving scenes I think ever captured on film. Sean says, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, the whole works. But he says, I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling and seen that. And if I asked you about women, you'd probably give me the skinny on all your personal favorites, but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. And if I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, knowing someone that could level you with their eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, he says, to have that love for her and to be there forever through anything, through cancer, he says. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up, in a hospital room for months, holding her hand. Because the doctors could see in your eyes that the term visiting hours don't apply to you. He says, you don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. And it's such a beautiful scene and such powerful prose because it's so unquestionably true, isn't it? Knowledge needs experience. Love needs concreteness. Intimacy needs real human touch. The ideal needs thisness or thingness. In Christianity, the word for this thisness is incarnation, the embodiment of the divine in physical form. And it's, the, it, it's a cornerstone of Christian thought. It says that spirit needs flesh and soul needs a body of some kind. But before incarnation was ever a Christian concept, it was a profoundly ancient Hebrew one. You find it in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, where it says that before the universe came into being at a certain moment before time as we know it even existed, 
God spoke to all the pre-existent swirling chaos and darkness of space and began to call and coax and woo it to something real and actual and physical. In the Hebrew, all that primordial chaos and disorder in the Genesis story is called tohu vavohu. And it means something like wild and waste, like empty and void, that, that place between being and non-being. Tohu vavohu is not nothingness. It's something. It's just something without thisness or thingness. And God sees all that tohu vavohu and sees in it the real potential for life and order and beauty. And so God says to the darkness, you could be light. And to the wild and waste, God says, you could become life. And God's breath then sweeps over it and the tohu vavohu says yes to the, God, the divine call. And it takes on then God's very essence or spirit. And in that moment, the, the chaos finds order. and The darkness finds light. The, the shapeless void takes on form and all things came into being in that moment. Which means that all things that have come into being have to some extent the very essence or spirit of the divine within it. We would say God is in all things, not completely, not perfectly, but inherently. And so the ancient psalm writer says, what a wildly wonderful world, God. You made it all with wisdom at your side, made earth overflow with your wonderful creations. The western pronghorn, the Colorado bison, the brook trout, the wood frog, even the duck-billed platypus. Most of us would, I think, whether you're Christian or even religious at all, you might say there is some inherent sacredness to all of life. Most of us would affirm that. Incarnation is the word that Christians use to describe the source of that sacredness. But incarnation is more than a religious idea. It's actually a universal truth. We all know inherently that beauty needs thingness. Love needs concreteness. We know this intuitively without any religious inclination whatsoever. Every day, for example, I tell Lori that I love her. I know that sounds sweet, doesn't it? But after 33 years, I know that my words can start to sound a bit empty and routine. And my, my actions, sadly, don't always live up to those words. And so every Friday, I've taken to, to buying Lori sunflowers. It's my thing. I'm not blowing my trumpet here. They're like $5.99, so it's not a big deal. <laughs> All the guys are like, oh, geez, come on. <laughs> it's not a big deal, but every Friday what I've learned is that those sunflowers for Lori are a big deal. Why? Because we all know love requires more than mere words. Love needs thisness. Love isn't an idea. It's not even an ideal. It needs real physical expression. 
And the creation story says that divine love is found in everything we see. It's a universal claim. God is in all things, not completely, not fully, but inherently. It's a universal idea. But just as love needs concreteness, the universal needs particularity. We can say that God is in all things generally, but Christianity claims that God is in Jesus uniquely. That there's some particularity in the way that God is present in Jesus. And it's in the passages you heard read this morning. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. And Jesus says, the father loves the son and shows him all that he is doing. And then this radical, radical claim that Jesus makes, whoever has seen me has seen the father. That's a particular claim that nobody here in this room could make with such great confidence. God is in all things, but there's something particular about the way God is in Jesus that's different from the way God is in all things. Uh, This is where it gets really hard for a lot of people to embrace Christianity. It's not hard for us to say that there's a glimpse of the divine in all living things, but to say that the divine lives most fully in a person is really hard to accept for many people. Over the years, theologians have called this the scandal of particularity, this paradox of Christianity that claims that the God of all creation, the ground and source of all being, was somehow mysteriously and most fully embodied in a real, vulnerable human being who wore diapers, who as a child once got lost in the temple and totally freaked his parents out. As a young man, left home and followed his heart and called some disciples and taught God's truth and upset some very powerful people and was deemed a threat to the government and so died a messy public execution on a cross. This is not a story of generalities. This is no universal narrative. It's a particular story. We moderns, we love to think in universals. We would say God is love, everything is spiritual, all are welcome, and all of those things are right. But isn't the rub of life found in the particularities of life? It would be one thing for me to stand up every week and say, everyone is welcome here at St. Andrew, which I do. But sometimes it's important to say, If you are LGBTQ, you are welcome here. Or if you have no faith or don't believe any of this, you are welcome here. Because those particular claims mean something to people. We can affirm the universal truth that all lives matter. But when you say in a particular way that black lives matter, that means something to people who are black. We moderns love universals. We say treat everyone the same. Uh, Righty, tidy, lefty, loosey. That's a pretty good universal. Uh, Cats always land on their feet. That's a good one. One size fits all. Have you ever bought 
a one-size-fits-all hat. When you have a head circumference like me of seven and seven-eighths, there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all hat, trust me. Our universals, our abstractions only get us so far, and most of the time, they leave us in the ideal in our heads. But the longest and hardest journey that you and I will ever make in life is the one that, that leads from the head to the heart, from the ideal to the real, from the universal to the very particular. You can study Michelangelo, or you can go visit the Sistine Chapel. You can quote a sonnet about love, but it's nothing like reaching for your lover's hand. Life is lived in the particularities, and so is our faith. And so maybe you, like so many, have wondered, why Jesus? Theologians have written volumes in response to that age-old question, why Jesus? But the answers, the answers always seem to come in the form of more abstractions. Uh, We have atonement theory, substitutionary theory, the new Adam, the second man theory, salvation, eternal life theory. If you're looking for more universals or more abstractions, any of those will probably do. But Jesus never said any of those things about himself. When it comes to what Jesus defined himself as, he said simply, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Which means, watch Jesus, watch how he cares, how he serves, how he speaks, how he heals, how he weeps, how he loves. And when you've seen him, you've seen God. One of the, one of the claims of God in Scripture, you find it in Hebrew and Christian Scriptures, one of the most common themes is, is this, God is love. God is love, and Jesus says, if you want to know this God of love, look at me, because if you've seen me, you've seen God. And in that statement, the universal is made particular. Why Jesus? Because in him and through him, we experience divine love, and then we learn how to practice that divine love in ways that are remarkably different from how we humans typically practice love. Without the particularity of Jesus, God's love is just an abstraction. Without the particular love of Jesus, our love tends to vacillate and hesitate and abdicate and discriminate. How did Mumford and Sons put it? How fickle my heart and how woozy my eyes. And maybe awake my soul is actually an appropriate refrain for how we come to experience and practice this divine love that we encounter in Jesus. How awakened is your soul? When you ask, why Jesus? Jesus responds by saying, how awakened is your soul? There is for all of us three awakenings that we experience when we encounter Jesus-style love. The first awakening is when our souls awaken to the reality that God actually loves us. Personally, uh, unconditionally, indefinitely. In that moment, 
of awakening, we discover that, that we're accepted by God, that we, we are children of God, and God takes actual delight in us. And we have to awaken to this, um, to this reality because most of us are asleep to it. Our waking dreams tell us that somehow we are unlovable, we're unworthy of love. Uh, guilt, shame, pride, ego, they keep us asleep to divine love. But look at Jesus over and over again in the Gospels. He gets very particular. Very particular. He says to people, wake up, get up, stand up, rise up, walk on, be forgiven. <clears throat> and he says the same to us. And when we respond to that call, we awaken to God's love. And we move on to a second awakening, hopefully, which is when our souls awaken to the reality that God actually loves everyone, even the last and the least, even the enemy and the adversary, even the undeserving and unrepentant, even your crazy neighbor, even your ex, even your jerky boss, even all the people you find exceedingly difficult to love. God loves everyone. This is hard to accept. But we see it in the life of Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus gets very particular. Uh, he loves tax collectors and Romans and Gentiles and soldiers and prostitutes and thieves and lepers. He loved them all. And to do that, he crossed particular borders and broke particular customs and transcended particular laws and offended gatekeepers. Awakening to this love requires us <clears throat> to shake ourselves from the sleepy illusion that God hates all the people that we hate and that divine love has its limits. <clears throat> and if we can awaken to this kind of love, then it changes us. We become more willing to forgive people when they hurt us. We give people second chances. Maybe we pray for our enemies. We lead with curiosity and grace rather than judgment. <clears throat> and some Christians never experience this second awakening, but if they do, <clears throat> they got a real shot at the third awakening, which is awakening to the fact that God loves this broken world and wants to heal it. And when we awaken to that love, we feel this deep impulse to join God in the work to heal it. We get out of bed and we see systems of injustice and oppression and poverty and we're really bothered by it. Oh, we see violence and bloodshed and mass shootings and war and we're super troubled by it. This is how you know you're awake to that third love. You feel it deep inside. And we see like Jesus the unnecessary human suffering of the world, and we feel compelled to do something about it, to heal, to feed, to march, to serve, to comfort, to clothe. Practical things. Jesus gets practical about this kind of love. In Luke chapter 4, he names specifically why he comes. To bring good news to the poor, to release the captives, to give recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. Those aren't generalities. And when our souls awaken to that kind of love, we commit ourselves to bending the moral arc of the universe 
toward God's justice. Why Jesus? Because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is love. And without Jesus, God's love is just an abstraction. In my early years of ministry, I sat one day at the hospital bed of a man who was uh, preparing to leave this earth. <clears throat> he was a member of my church there in California. His name was Brian. He was 84 years old. I was 24. And we had gotten very close over the two years that I got to know him. He sort of saw me as his son. He was, I think, very proud of me. <clears throat> and on this almost last day of his life, we, we talked about his illness, his family, his doubts. <clears throat> and I asked him to pray with me, and I held his mitten-sized, calloused hand, and we prayed over the chatter of nurses and machines. And when I, when I told him that I'd be back later in the day uh, to see him again, <clears throat> he stopped me and he said, you know, you pastors, you, you talk a lot about love. And I said, yeah, I, it's kind of a big idea in this line of work. And he said, you know, it's, it's more than an idea. I said, I know. And he paused and then he said something that I totally didn't expect him to say. He said, I love you. And at the time I thought I understood what he meant, but it took me about 30 years to finally get it. And what he meant was, wake up. God's love is more than an abstraction. Love needs concreteness. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.